Hey, welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. I'm your host, Brian. This is going to be episode 104 with one Mr. John Hearn. We're going to talk about uh, the value of a good lecture. <laughs> All right, reminder, uh, we got a new sponsor this uh, this go-around is Guns.com. If you're not familiar with Guns.com, they buy guns. Uh, they have an FFL network, and uh, one <laughs> right now they're giving away an A400 Beretta, so check it out at uh, guns.com and also Manus X. Manus X is a uh, now a dry practice tool and uh, with an integrated app and uh, lots of fun there. So check them out. Guns.com, Manus X, and as always, EDC Belt Company. Honorary sponsor today is Two Pillars Training would be mr hearn's training company all right episode 104 here we go sorry for the long delays ladies and gentlemen i have been on the fritz and uh just got my voice back after about a month so let's bring in our guest welcome back for episode 104 john hearn uh international man of mystery no i think that's mark fricky anyway so the last time you were on, we talked about who wins, who loses, and why, but not necessarily about the lecture you do. So no, I was just it was just promises of greatness and and hopefully now that you, you can say that I've delivered. You did. You delivered in a fashion that could uh I gotta say I was I was really surprised, and I don't mean that to be condescending, but the thought of a nine-hour lecture after being a policeman for 21 years was like, oh, okay, I, like, I'm going to go support my pal here. Um, but what I found was an incredibly engaging uh, lecture, and it, it didn't seem like nine hours, man. Well, thank you. That was part of the whole goal there. But uh, uh, for the cops that are listening to this, I think the, the worst words you can hear in the academy is, so-and-so couldn't make it in today but I have his PowerPoint. That's when you just knew the day was going to suck. Mm-hmm. And it's not that experience. You know, um, uh, some of my mentors claim that I'm really not entertaining, uh, but I find myself quite amusing and there's enough videos and jokes and memes uh, scattered throughout the presentation. that It really doesn't feel like nine hours. Um, uh, the lecture, I've run it straight on the dot down to eight hours. Uh, it, based on audience engagement, it goes longer. I think the longest one was the last time I was in Oklahoma, and it was it was nine and a half hours. And I don't think anybody was really upset about that experience because the uh, you know the uh, the audience engagement was was much uh, was heavy. The questions asked were better, so I guess they were technically a better group than what you brought to me. Oh. <laughs> so you're talking about the time before I caught the lecture? The time before the time before was even better. I got based you. on audience participation. Yeah, this um, there were a lot of familiar faces at uh, Mead Hall, our our buddy Bill Armstrong's place out there, um, who is like in the training community. You know, you get facilities and they like to host training, and Bill's is pretty top notch. Um, and his classroom, I hadn't been out there since his classroom was redone, so. Um, that was a really pleasant surprise and nice and everything's clean and big restrooms, et cetera. So, um, well, Bill's facility is incredible. Um, I was going to say, you know, it's, there's a fine line between, um, familiar faces and the usual suspects. And a lot of the same people show up for the same class and they, they can all be dropped into that bucket of the usual suspects. But, uh, yeah, Bill's facility is incredible. Um, I did not realize how many trips in my life I would make to Oklahoma, but it's been at least a dozen now. And I actually went out to that facility when it was before it was owned by Bill. And I like showed back up the second time and I'm like, I think I've been here before, but the only thing that looks familiar is that big tower at the 200 yard line. Uh, it really is amazing what he's done with that place. Yeah. I, I went out there for some shooting school in uh, the early OOs and it was, you know, an earthen berm with a lean to essentially. So he's done a lot of solid work. Uh, but I tell and I had seen the classroom before I Tom did a shotgun course out there, a shotgun instructor school about a month before your lecture and uh shooting class. So 
I actually dropped in and I had never, I'd never seen the inside of the building. So I was really glad to hear you were coming in to do it there because, <laughs> uh, it's just a nice facility. So, um, but you did the, the who wins, who loses and why lecture and how many slides did you say are in that presentation? It's over 400 now, probably about 410, 420. Yeah, I was, I was pretty impressed. Uh, when I saw the slide deck, I thought, man, we're going to be, how is he going to cover all of this in eight hours, you know, eight, nine hours. And, uh, I talk really fast and actually to a certain degree, talking fast helps with the engagement. You know, it forces you to pay attention. I've had some people say that normally, you know, just trying to keep up with you as part of the challenge. And, uh, as you mentioned, that's one of the things that I do that's different from a lot of lecturers is, is like, you know, here's a slide deck. Uh, they're printed four per page. So you can actually read all the slides. Uh, cause I know a lot of people like to take notes on the material and just by giving you a set of the notes in advance, knowing you have that, it just makes it easier for everybody. And, uh, you can pay a little bit more attention to the lecture. And if you have any questions, you can always reference the slide deck and email me and I can, uh, I can at least make a educated guesses to the answer to your question. Yeah. And I got really, really captivated really early on, uh, just simply like talking about human evolution and DNA evolution and things like that. And I'm going, how is he tying this into a shooting lecture like this? What? So and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but, but it made a great degree of, uh, of sense, even though it was very collegiate level information, it was digestible. So for a lay person, well, I like think myself. that, the, you know, I well, we could throw that whole session kind of under the category of paleoanthropology and, we pay lip service to some of this stuff like the, the paleo diet and stuff like that. But I think to really understand how to manage stress, you know, how to understand who wins, who loses and why you really do have to appreciate where we came from evolutionary, you know, how we got here, what mechanisms were selected for, uh, you know, for instance, freeze doesn't make sense as a survival mechanism until you realize that we spent most of our time surrounded by large predators that were sight hunters. And if you're worried about being consumed by a large African lion or a, a saber-toothed tiger in North America, uh, freezing when you're in the potential face of danger makes a lot more sense if you understand that's where we kind of grew up. That, you know, we've only, uh, the whole idea of civilization is only about the last 1% of our existence. There were a lot of our relatives that were running around on the plains and the savannas and across the icy tundras that, that you know, stayed alive to get us to here. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was one of the, the pieces of, I would say it was not like surprising. I was like, man, this really did goes deep into the well about, uh, you know, human responses and human behaviors and even predatory behavior, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool as well. And I tie it and, and I give you cool pictures of guns to have it all make sense. Right. Uh, which for the layperson. Completely, if you look at the pro the evolutionary process or human human development, and you see a very simple like an M sixteen and then an M four that's rigged out, um, which I said the military they're genius. They went to a six pound rifle only to strap enough crap on it to make it a sixteen pound rifle again. But still, the point being, it's inherently the same system. It's just you know. A, morphed into a more effective fighting tool but uh not unlike human beings but what's your totally. favorite part of that lecture what's your favorite part of delivering that lecture so that's a good question i i would have to go with some of my favorite stuff is just the, the big section that i do on debunking because part of the problem we're having as a community and a training community is just these persistent myths that will not die. I mean, despite the fact that, you know, there's been good peer-reviewed scientific research to put these things to bed 20 years ago now, whether we look at uh, the heart rate research, the startle response research, uh, the over-application of Hicks Law, there's all these terms that, um, especially law enforcement trainers are infamous for throwing out there to kind of sound more educated than they actually are. But, you know, they don't understand where those things came from. They maybe read a Wikipedia entry on it and stuff like that. And you know, it's gotten to the point that like on some of the stuff like with Hicks Law is like I just go to the graduate school textbook on motor learning, literally scan a page and put it up there. And, you know, here's the graduate school textbook on motor learning saying Hicks Law does not always apply. And these are the situations in which it does not. 
And that's the kind of stuff that if you're going to make wise decisions uh, for yourself or others, if you're an, an educator or a trainer, it's really important to know. Yeah. So I, I would say as far as uh, the favorite of it, it's just a, it's the myth busting as far as that goes. And um, one of the things I do enjoy in the challenge is just overall is bringing everything into a kind of a cohesive narrative. I, I think like to think that it wrapped together pretty good because, you know, one of the things I asked before I get started is like, dude, please be patient with me. We're going to go someplace worthwhile, but I, I'm going to need you to build with me. And I, when I take off on that section, you know, like probably the first half hour on the paleoanthropology stuff, you get a lot of looks. And then when I start comparing it to guns, it makes make a little more sense. But I think by the end, we're all at a pretty good spot. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that because uh, the myth busting portion was one of my favorite pieces of the, the entire lecture because it 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 really summarizes um, and puts the reasoning behind a lot of why I like a lot of my favorite trainers because they don't subscribe to a lot of that regurgitated crap uh, that's out there that seems to keep getting perpetuated over and over and over. Um, and I've, <laughs> you mentioned the startle response thing. I, I have become aware of instructors out there in the world that built entire training doctrines on that. And it's like, huh? Uh, yeah, I've, I, I've always had apprehensions. Some of those trainers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so um, we're all familiar with those trainers. And the problem is there's there's at least 30 unique startle reflexes that are well documented in the literature. And it's like, if you're going to build a combative training system and you are, you're giving me an odds of one in 30 that we're going to pick the right system, I'm, I'm going to kind of have to call something there as far as uh, our concerns for your uh, your veracity, let's say. Yeah, the um, the other piece of that, it, it, it debunked a lot of things that I had heard in narratives for, for years and years. And uh, and especially some stuff that is permeated into the law enforcement world that is just like garbage um, that somebody. I don't know, I guess they just made it up one day or they, you know, they were well intentioned about it. But uh, like the fine motor skill, gross motor skills arguments that I've I've heard for decades and decades. And that really kind of put a lot of that to rest. Um, so. Yeah, kudos. On I think it goes back to, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people will reference the Citadel Sharpening the Warrior Edge, and that goes all the way back to the 90s. And uh, we've learned some stuff since the 90s. And he was very pessimistic as far as what could and could not be done uh, with the human skills under stress. So if the only book that you've read, actually, if your only source of information is what an instructor told you after he read, you know, Sharpening the Warrior's Edge, you're not going to have very good information to uh, work with. And you know, quite frankly, what nobody has been able to explain or, or certainly has struggled to is why some people can do this stuff and why some people can't. If all the stuff about fine motor skills, if all the stuff were start, uh, you know, were about starter reflex were all true, you would not see some of the dominant wins that we see out there. You know, I specifically reference, you know, the, the crew that went to from LAPD that went to Gunsight early, uh, Helms, Reitz and, and Mutchett. And it's like if what we were being told was true none of the well-documented feats that they had pulled off in the field would actually be possible. And that's like, uh, that's what really got me headed down this road is how do we explain the discrepancy between the, the really high performers and, you know, some of the horrible losses that we, we get to see is, you know, especially as body cams and dashboard cams have proliferated. It's like, how do we reconcile these two sets of information? Yeah, that's, uh, and unfortunately I, I think, body cam usage in agencies right now has has gone from a tool that we could drive training narratives with to a tool to make cops adhere to policy manuals better and i think which is unfortunate uh not that i'm saying cops are inherently violating policies out there but um you know i i set in on a one right before i left and it it I'm looking at this incident and watching all these terrible things that were coming out that were obviously trained responses or perceptions of trained responses. And I'm listening to administrators argue about like, well, don't you think that person should have given an update on information at this particular point in the video? And I'm like, can you not see that our training program has catastrophically failed them? Like, uh, it, it, you're worried about this minor little infraction or somebody set an F bomb on a, on a video in their car by themselves. When the reality is like, 
the training package you've given them is failing them over and over and over. And instead of looking at it through that lens and trying to drive training, it's like, let's try to drive the officers out the back door. So, uh, and I'm hearing that from departments all over the country. So it's a classic management attitude of nothing that despite what, you know, a great example in the, the lecture talking about how policy makes things worse. The, the assumption seems to be that because they're in charge, nothing that could be nothing that none of the decisions they've made could be a cause of the problems. It's always, you know, they're like brilliant policy. It's a failure of the field to implement it. And uh, it's been going on for a while. I call it like the uh, the management from the 50,000 foot view. There are police administrators that think that if they can watch your body cams and see your AVL data, they can figure out how good of an officer you are. And that's not always the case, my friend. You took some of the range master data and some of the range master student data. And I was always curious, and this is not like me saying anything bad about range master or, or, or good. It's just, I thought, man, that is a very like overwhelmingly dominant number of, uh, of victor- victories, um, with students that, I don't know what their training background was, but they had trained in the range master program and they're making very decisive victories in, in mortal combat versus why are police losing or not, not necessarily losing, but not making decisive victories. And you really kind of laid that one out for me too. So that was a very, I, uh, I think it's really important to understand this is that the dynamics of a private citizen fight are fundamentally different than a cop fight. Right. In a law enforcement contact or a fight, what will typically happen is a law enforcement officer will make the contact typically as a traffic stop, a pedestrian stop or something like that. And the bad guy will actually start the fight. You know, we look at the FBI data. It's really solid. You know, two thirds of the time, the first clue that you're this is not a typical encounter is you're either having a bullet whiz past your head or you're actually getting shot. If you think about the dynamics of your typical armed citizen involvement, the bad guy stops the starts the encounter and the good guy starts the fight. And it's whoever decides to initiate the violence that has a huge advantage as far as how that stuff turns out. Uh, you know, the whole reason the, the criminal picked the, the the good guy is because they thought that'd be an easy mark. And the last thing that they were expecting was effective. Armed, well, the last thing they were, were expecting were resistance, let alone effective armed resistance. Uh, another chronic failure in the victim selection process. And I like that verbiage, a chronic failure in the victim selection process. <laughs> Which well, that's totally stolen from Moss. The very little of what I do is original. I just I don't steal from the mediocre, my friend. Well, that's uh, that's commendable. I've uh, I've always subscribed to if you aspire to mediocrity, you'll never endure disappointment. Right. So, no, <laughs> I guess that one goes in the East Regism document or something. But uh, but yeah. So how long have you been doing that lecture? So you're, yeah, you're seeing the results of about 10 years of work. So. Uh, I first think I ran it in 2013. It was a four hour talk. Um, historically, I always got, I was annoyed because I heard a lot of the same crap you had. And I started to read some books out there, you know, Lawrence Gonzalez's Deep Survival being one, uh, a great example that just kind of contradicted the common stuff we were told. And I'm like, surely we can dig into this and find some of this stuff. So I expected to have like a two hour present, excuse me, a two hour presentation. And uh, it turned into it ended up being eight. And now I've reached the point that I'm having to pull stuff out in order to you know to slide stuff in. Um, we're getting better and better, more relevant research to our world. So it's been a, a long pro- uh, labor of love as far as that stuff goes. Uh, like I said, it's been about 10 years since I first started running it. And I would say this, the, the lecture is almost, I would say, never the same twice. Generally, I'll tweak something, add something, remove something uh uh, to try to make it better as far as that stuff goes. And like, for instance, I've got to figure out how to get the uh, the the force on force study that Biggs did that was published in Nature. Dude, that's an awesome, awesome study. Um, for the audience listening, um, the big takeaway from that is that he actually controlled for marksmanship as a variable in performance. And he found that about half of the variation in stress levels as measured by uh, saliva cortisol levels could be simply be explained by how well somebody shot. And he used a much more granular analysis on their shooting. So the, you know, the term bill drill actually did appear in a, a journal published by uh, Nature, which is, you know, one of the dominant scientific publications. So I have to figure out what I'm going to take out in order to get to more, more bigs in the PowerPoint, because it really is at the point where we're either going to go two days, which I don't think that's going to sell. And I really can't talk any faster. So something's got to get pulled out as far as that stuff goes. 
I think if you tied that to a two-day shooting course and maybe made the afternoon during the summer when it gets like Mississippi hot, the afternoon lecture, which is part of day one's lecture. I'm already doing that. The problem is I already have two lectures in the two-day shooting class, and they both they, everybody's <laughs> like, when are we going to go to the range? And it's like on day one, it's like, no, we're not going to the range yet because there's information you have to have. I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff that did not make it into the lecture yesterday. So we're going to, we're going to hang out here for an hour and a half and try to understand some stuff. And then, um, on the, on the second day, I, I did a presentation at the uh, range master instructor reunion and I'm like, holy crap, this is, this is really good and relevant to what we're trying to do. This is now the, uh, the morning lecture as far as that stuff goes. But we mean, yeah, I, I could always save it for the afternoon when it's going to be God awful hot because we were, we were blessed with some incredible, uh, incredible weather this past weekend for sure. Uh, Guardian conference this year when I was teaching out there, uh, we had students showing up and they were pleasantly surprised that it wasn't 107 all three days of the conference for it being September. So, yeah, we got a little earlier fall this year, which was kind of nice. And I've made a few more trips to the outdoor range, but the the lecture, how how much of that ties into the shooting course that you're teaching the day two? So there's mostly, I would say this, the shooting class is an opportunity to do all the stuff I tell you, you should do that we never do in training. So for a bunch of reasons, some of it's fiscal, you know, the training business is a business after all. So people are always looking to offer the least expensive product. Um, and I'm not trying to do that. Um, you didn't see the whole setup. I literally travel with a six and a half foot F one fifty that's just full of stuff. So there's turning targets, there's anatomically correct 3d targets. So in a lot of ways, the, the two day shooting class is our opportunity to do all the things that I recommend. Uh, we're basically able to do everything I recommend except the force on force training as far as that stuff goes. So, uh, you know, we kind of warm you up on day one, but on day two, there's a lot of, uh, man on man events as far as, uh, making you shoot under pressure. Uh, we make you, think with the gun in your hand, you got to make decisions, whether you, whether you shoot, whether you draw and challenge at a, at a certain point, uh, leaving is an option because we never actually, you know, test somebody, you know, we, we tell you that maybe the best thing to do is just to leave, but we never actually practice that. So we combine all that stuff together. So that by the end of the second day, uh, you've done almost everything that I recommend you do as far as, uh, building your training. Something I've, I've spent a long time in the instructor world as a one day and a two day package and the one day package is is spent unwinding a lot of bad information from good people and and trying to myth bust what's a what's appropriate what's applicable um versus what did you see on the instagrams you know it's um uh, so that that's been a real challenge for me uh and then having to do a ton of lecture to try to set the, the set the right mindset and set the right uh like training habits right and and it's gotten uh i've I had wayne dobbs in my my block at TACCON, and he goes dang son you crammed a two-day class into four hours and i went yeah kind of the the life i lead right now is like man even i see even really top flight people that have good gun handling and marksmanship skills that don't understand the mindset piece, or they've got a great mindset and they have no gun handling skills or, um, or, you know, they have great marksmanship, but their gun handling sucks. And their mindset is like, well, I just carry this one. I think I might need it. And it's like, if only we could come up with a triad where we incorporated all three of those things, that might be useful. I'm glad you caught on to that because both of us being self-professed fans of Jeff Cooper, uh, and I did see the triad in the lecture and that was, I was, I had a little warm fuzzy on that. So talk about that. Let's talk about that a little bit, the triad and how that, um, can bolster somebody's, uh, success in armed conflict. Well, uh, it's a funny story. Feel allow me to bunny trail here for a Absolutely. second. Um, I, I, uh, I was trying to, I'm always trying to refine it. And I wanted something that like was a really good, really good wrap up. So I had done this uh, presentation. I think one of the first eight hour runs I'd done was at the, when the TACCON was in uh, at the Memphis PD. And I had a bunch of, you know, LE trainers I respect incredibly. Uh, you know, Chuck Haggard was there. Uh, Wayne Dobbs was there. Um, and, and even Daryl Bulky was there as far as that stuff goes. Right. 
And I'm like, well, the, the talk is solid, but you got to, at a certain point, you had to be able to throw everything up into one slide and stuff like this. And I was really racking my brain for a while. And I finally come with the, the seesaw graphic that's on the front page. And I sent it off to like, I think Chuck and Claude Warner were helping me work on it and stuff like that. And I finally had it just the way I wanted it. And I'm sitting and like two days later, I'm sitting here staring at this beautiful color graphic that looks all professional. And I'm like, Foxtrot Mike Lima. I have just really, all I have done is restated Jeff Cooper's <laughs> combat trial. You know, it's got primary colors because you got to have, you know, I right. guess keep the Marines happy and stuff like that. But I'm like, man, uh, you know, Cooper really did have all this stuff figured out. He may not have known the science and the psychology behind it, but he had the what to do figured out a long time ago. We're, we're finally catching up on the why to do it now. But man, Cooper really had a lot of that stuff nailed down with the original combat triad. Yeah, and it was one of the things I found as I read his writings that he didn't write a whole lot about. I suspect it's in the Gunsight 250 lecture and some other places like that. But uh, so It was interesting. We were trying to, in one of the podcasts I did think I would do with Weems and Eric. So I think what happened with that was the combat triad was Cooper's secret sauce, right? So he wrote about a lot of other stuff, but all the in-depth writings on the combat triad were largely contained only within the, the the handouts for the 250s. And I think it was his way of, you know, keeping the secret sauce to, to gunsight exclusively because you pretty much had to go there to get it. So you're, you're absolutely right that when you go to look at his published writings, uh, there's not a whole lot in there, but the uh, several people were kind enough to send us some of the lecture notes and stuff like that where he lays it out very nicely and cleanly and smoothly. But his public writings just was not there as much as one would have thought it would have been. The more you read, like if you read principles, personal defense and things like that, it's it's in there. It's just not condensed. Right. It's just the principles are all there. They're just not put in that nice little triangle with all the lettering around it. Right. Um, I would say yes, because I've been with Tom for like 20 some years now. Tom had it had to integrate it very early from, from day one in the range master program as, as far as that stuff goes. So. I think some of the subsequent instructors that follow Cooper did a much better job of kind of putting it up front and center um, as, as far as the proper priorities go. Yeah. And it's uh, not only on the, uh, the side of like on the training side of training people, how to, uh, you know, be successful in, in personal defense. Uh, I can t take that template with all the breakdown, all the minutia in each one of the legs of the triad and review an officer involved shooting and use it as a template to figure out where things went really right or really, really wrong. Um, and I'm starting to find that with cops, the gun handlings, the yeah, mindset, they're pretty good marksmanship on the flat range. They're pretty good but the gun handling skills degrade so bad that the marksmanship suffers for it in these high stress, you know, like officer involved shootings. And like, you can use that as an outline to do a complete diagnosis from top to bottom of a, of an officer involved shooting. And it come and it's simple, digestible and makes sense. And, uh, it's pretty fascinating. There's a lot of good reason for that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good reason for that because, you know, the one of my favorite Lewinsky quotes is that uh, the expert has automatic use of the tool, right? And if you're going to get into a gunfight and the first time you go to guns, you're sitting there trying to fight your way through your drawproof holster, that is going to be running through your mind. It's not going to set you up for success very great, as opposed to the guy that's done the reps with that drawproof holster and can get it out of the out of the hole, uh, get the gun into the fight in a second and a half. Those two people are starting from a fundamentally different um, bit of reality, almost like, you know, our, their mental maps aren't matching up. There's a whole bunch of um, psychological processes that drive them down different routes based on where they start. Um, and just be, simply being able to get the gun out of the holster to be able to uh, reload it when it needs to um, is really disheartening to me. Uh, you know, one of the ugly truths is that pistols malfunction a lot more in real fights than they ever do on the flat range. And when you watch cops, you know, they'll get just something that can be clear with a tap rack. And it's just, a, you know, you hear the wheels grinding, screeching. You know, it's like they've blown a transmission because uh, they've never had to deal with um, a circumstance where the pistol failed to fire because they, you know, the training on malfunctions was was kind of substandard. And then they never actually encountered one during their training because, you know, if you're standing flat footed on a range with a clean gun, everything works a lot better than when you're 
uh, in the pitch dark, your hands are shaking, uh, you've gotten a crappy grip on the gun, maybe you've got mud, blood, or beer, you know, jammed in the gun and stuff like that. That is a completely different game to put people into. Yeah, uh, Bulky and I in our propeller head sessions at, at my dinner table. Um, he's been working quite a bit here in uh, the greater Oklahoma City metro. And, and we, you know, generally once one day or two days, you know, we'll sit down for dinner or breakfast or something. And we, it, it, it'll immediately go into something, you know, eclectic or esoteric, you know, some piece of minutia in the training world or the, the, the gun world. And this comes up really often is why do these, you know, the Glock 17, the most reliable combat implement ever created, why are they choking in actual gunfights? We look at it and I go, you know, I didn't start seeing this prevalent until we started teaching the isosceles stance and we were very dependent on grip without uh, isometric tension on the gun. And he, he and I are going back, whether that's the definition of weaver stance or whatever, who cares? But he said, you know, I'm, I'm changing my lingo to instead of grip is how we hold it, but we need to achieve a lock on the gun. Uh, because a lot of these officer involved shootings, especially that we see is we're firing the gun out in time and space away from the core, you know, the core of our body or whatever, and they're ammunition dependent to work. Um, and he really summarized that well. Um, it, it's funny. Some of the stuff that falls out of, out of Daryl's brain that I go, wow, where did that come from? That's awesome. I'm putting that in a notebook. Not expected that from Daryl. Yeah. I and mean, I think it's just a reality because, uh, there's some, uh, there's some, I mean, I hate to, I, you know, I know people have different feelings about the FBI, but they, they've done some really good studies. And one of the things they noted, uh, was that guns malfunction in real fights a lot more than they do in training. Uh, I was able to in the national tactical invitational three years and they related the same thing. My, my good friend and mentor, Jim Higginbotham used to run a, a shoot house for the state of Kentucky. And, uh, he, a lot of his, he didn't actually instruct. He just made sure the shoot house worked, but he was watching everybody in videos. And he said that you would have departments come in with blocks and they would, if they were legitimately working a shoot house problem, working corners properly and stuff like that, none of those guns made it through there without malfunctioning. It just comes back to, we've gotten really, really spoiled. I don't know whether it's just grip and so, but we, we get set up in our idealized range stance where our feet are just right. And all the recoil is coming back in a very straight linear fashion, which allows the gun to work at its efficiency. But as soon as the recoil forces aren't coming straight back, um, you know, as soon as I, I, instead of like, instead of the threat being directly in front of me, like a good qualification target would be, it's all 25 degrees to my side. All of a sudden that angularity of the recoil has all shifted. And if I have any of those parts wrong, things fall apart. Um, it's less of an issue now, but if you remember like the, that safari land level three, the early one where you had to pop the snap with your middle finger, you had to rock the gun down. Well, if you're doing that, you're actually pulling the web of your hand away from the tang of the pistol. You're making it more likely for the gun to malfunction just as a byproduct of the, the kind of uh, duty rig you're running. So there's all kinds of reasons that the guns are just less reliable. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, idealized range circumstances that don't mirror reality. Interesting other eclectic conversation I had with uh, some other trainers. And I was like, you know, why why are we not able to sift a lot of this stuff with firearms out in, uh, you know, why are we not able to flesh a lot of this stuff out in training? And one of my buds that's a defensive tactics instructor said, because it's all theoretical. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, well, you can't shoot each other to prove a point. He goes, I'm a defensive tactics guy. If I say, Hey, I don't like that technique. Uh, we need to, we need to change it or modify it or, or address it in a different way so that it's actually effective. He goes, we go put our gear on, we break mats out and we diagnose these things to death until we, master how to make a technique effective. He's like, you know, we can, we can switch guns and, and on the flat range, they work all day. And then we go into a different circumstance and they start getting particular about ammo or lubrication or accuracy, whatever it is. And he's like, but you can't go get in a two way gunfight to try to figure that stuff out. And he's like, it, <laughs> That's that's not the time to sort out whether my equipment works in that circumstance or not. So, um, and a lot of training is very flat range based, not you know everything shooting optimized. You know, my big pet peeve is people 
and this is going to get me hate mail, but preaching the sub second draw and how you have to hold your shirt a certain way and stand a certain way. And you're, well, if you put your, you know, your knees, if you bend them 30 degrees more, it's like, come on guys. Like, is that going to matter if you're on your back, getting your butt handed to you? Like it's (laughs) so anyway, that's a lot of the things I see in training, the more simple I try to make the way that I train people. I think it's a, I think Dustin Solomon pointed this out. It's very hard to scrimmage with guns because a lot <laughs> of times, you know, simunitions and airsoft just kind of result in this like hose fest and people will watch their, you know, watch the pellets hitting and stuff like that. But if you think about it, any, if you're going to play any kind of competitive sport, at some point you're going to have to play the game in practice against another thinking opponent. And we very rarely get to engage a thinking opponent in a, in a realistic context as far as what we're looking for, as far as our firearms training goes. And, uh, you know, I'm laughing at your like idealized stuff and things like that. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the drills I do in the shooting class is, um, I use a visual signal appearing and disappearing to, to, to show their window to fire a shot. And so I'll give them a shooting task. And like the one that everybody loves is, all right, okay, here's your build drill time. Let me, let me show you your best build drill. Uh, six rounds to the chest to the target. And uh, I'll I say you, you've got uh, and, and give them that tasking. And when the, the you know, the, the signal comes to do it, well, the signal is only there for like a second. And uh, then there are uh, the people that they're in the groups with have to decide whether they're going to prison or not. Because if you're, ta- you know, if that window to for a, a viable shot, um, you know, closed a second or two ago and you're still shooting, that's something you're going to have to end up explaining. And uh, I had a student that was there, uh, one of the, with the, the local, the cops and the, the, uh, local area which mm-hmm. running really really fast and shooting well and uh we go to the drills where you have to stop in a timely fashion i'm like dude why'd you slow down he goes well so i can't stop shooting if i run at this pace i normally do and i'm like there's probably a lesson there <laughs> as far as what we prioritize in training absolutely and uh and getting people to think behind the gun that is that is the next to me that is the next level right that's getting them to to have a simple system that that they can develop automaticity with and then take that and be able to apply it under decision making and to me that's where the real that's where the real gold is right and uh and I think we spend an inordinate amount of time talking minutia well if i put this magwell on my gun my mag is, my my well, reload times will drop by a quarter of a size you know so, well, I mean, uh, to again reference Jeff Cooper, he he coined the term a, a preoccupation with insignificant increments. You know, whether your build drill time is one, you know, okay, what is the difference between a one point nine nine build drill and a two point five build drill? Okay, is that any substantive difference in the real world? And I would offer that there's really not much difference as far as real world results go between those two. And realistically. If you're running out of a duty rig, if you're running out of legitimate concealment, um, you know, I think that, you know, anything you can do under three seconds with a build drill is pretty solid work. Now, with that said, this is like this is what drives me crazy is that these are nuanced answers. I will use like a, I don't I'm too cheap to fire six rounds with my guys. I, I like fives that divides into a box of 50 as well. There's something to be said for firing five shots. Uh, quickly as a way to master recoil and more importantly to me it's not about the recoil control but it's a it's a method of making sure they're tracking their sights continually they're watching the sight movie as opposed to getting the sight picture so that drill has some value it's just not a desired solution you want to implement out there in the real world uh and most people lose that important difference let's round this out it goes quick time flies when i start to rant yeah when you get off into the rabbit hole as Hanny McMood says, I have one specialty, and that's jumping into rabbit holes and staying there. So how do you recommend, let's say, a person structure their personal defense setup or training regimen based on everything you so, do um, in the lecture and with your application of uh, your live fire course like what do you think is a good path for that what does the applied nerdery tell us is the best answer right so um most everybody's disappointment shooting and gun handling is probably our number three priority when it comes to this we have to appreciate that the human mind hates novelty it hates stuff it hasn't seen before so if you do nothing else don't be shocked when violence comes your way 
Okay, when you look at the stats on how common violent crime is, which way it's trending, it's not a matter of, you know, if you're going to get victimized, but pragmatically, it's a matter of when. So the most important thing to do is to watch videos of criminal assaults, to accept the fact that this could, in fact, be you. Because we don't want to do what we laughingly refer to as the RCA victor dog uh, expression in, in the, the face of incoming violence. And that's what happens a lot. That, that freeze response uh, is often driven by something you've never seen before. Um, you know, we can see that in the, uh, the FBI Leoka data, where 62% of the officers feloniously murdered in the line of duty never draw their gun, right? I, I figured I, I still find baffling to this day. But I think of it, it's a lot of just kind of the shock. It's like the mind has not caught up with the unfolding reality. So the biggest thing we have to do is just to make sure it's not a shock to our psyche, to, to use a term uh, coined by Lance Thomas, that great uh, unexpected Los Angeles gunfighter as far as that goes. Uh, then we have to have our next concern, number two, is to have valid mental maps. And I call them mental maps. Some people will call them schemas. Some people will call them mental representations. Okay, The maps you walk around with in your head, the schemas, whatever you want to call it, are the most important predictor of your success in, in, in any of these high-stress endeavors. Uh, we can go to a, uh, a field as disparate as surgery, and the surgeons with the best mental maps end up making the best surgeons. So what we have to do is we have to think about our lives, okay? Are you a SWAT cop kicking in crack house doors and stuff like that, okay? If that's your job description, then you have to spend a good amount of your time working as a team, working on building clearing and stuff like that. If, on the other hand, you're a suburban mom and your biggest concern is getting back to your family, we have to think about a different set of training that may be relevant to you, right? So we have to spend a lot of our time building our mental maps. Uh, we can do that in any variety of manners, whether it's reading about criminal assaults, we can watch criminal assault videos, we can read newspaper stories. We need to figure out in advance what the terrain we're going to have to negotiate is actually going to look like, right? Um, you know, that's why some of the training out of context gets us burned. You know, if you're carrying, um, you know, a J-frame in a pocket or a, like a 365 tucked really, really deep, and every time you go to the range, you're shooting an X5 from a battle belt, you're, you aren't building the mental maps that are really going to help you out. And the practices you've been doing isn't matching up with those mental maps. You know, um, you know, just as an example, you know, every time that the seasons change, I get happy. Right. Because my my I'm very much aware my summertime concealed carry system is worth it probably about a quarter of a second. You know, the way I have to change my clothing and stuff like that, that's a quarter of a second. Man, I'm so happy when it comes back to fleece, fleece vest time. <laughs> I just picked up a quarter second on my draw stroke. Right. And I, you can, that's the kind of stuff you need to be accounting for as far as these concerns go. So then, you know, we've gotten our number one priority is, again, to remove novelty. Second priority is to have valid mental maps for the problems we're going to face. Then and only then can we really start worrying about, you know, the stuff, the fun stuff, the uh, building um, relevant motor programs, what we're going to be doing. Um, I think you have to sit there and look at your your life realistically and figure out what the most important stuff's going to be. Um, for the armed citizen, um, sorry to say this, you're probably going to be spending zero time with the carbine, right? It's going to be a small to uh, you know uh, a compact to a subcompact pistol from concealment, working stuff like that. Now, if you're a uniformed law enforcement officer, you've got multiple worlds to prepare for. You've got to be have that mindset for when you're on duty in your full duty rig, and you've got an AR-15 in the rack next to you in the car. That's a bit of a different world. And the great thing about that is you get to train for both, right? So I need to have those robust motor programs for what I'm doing. Um, I would say as a general rule, if you can fire a failure that's, you know, a, a two or three to the chest and one to the head from the ready and from the holster and keep bullets in the gun, you probably got your primary skills identified there. And again, uh, I still like offlining or sidestepping if it applies in your world. Uh, as far as that goes, those are really our, our big priorities. If I can, you know, fire that complex motor skill that it works a lot of exercises, right? Um, you know, and I can keep bullets in the gun and I can do that from whether I have challenged somebody or from the holster. Dude, that's pretty much all the motor programs I need. You know, all that cool shooting and moving and stuff like that is going to take a much lower priority as far as that stuff goes. And quite frankly, a lot of the uh, the less important skills can all be worked in dry practice anyway. Um, if you want to learn how to shoot and move with a gun, don't get a gun. Get you a cup of water. Okay. Right. You know, build all the way to the top and just, you know, hold that out in front of you like you would your gun and walk around so that the water doesn't slosh. You know, there's not like ninja secrets here. If you can move so the water isn't sloshing out of the glass, you're probably going to be able to shoot and move to a certain degree uh, well enough for whatever we need to do. So, I mean, do you need to have at some point in your development be able to clear 
a double feed malfunction with just your support hand. Yeah, I'd like to have done that once or twice beforehand, but I'm not going to spend hours and hours of my life doing that. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm not may not be interested in a uh, sub second draw, but I always want to take a tenth of a second off my draw because it's not just the quality of those motor programs, but I've got to have recency in them. I've got to, you know, the great thing about chasing some of those uh, shooting goals is it's going to make sure you're working. You know, what I recommend is that you touch the gun, dry practice twice a week and live fire, even if it's just a little bit, dude, 30 to 50 rounds a month with, you know, weekly dry practice is going to take you far, far down the road as far as you go. So that's our third priority. And then finally, we have to go back and keep all this stuff current. As, as already touched on, recency is a huge effect. So our fourth concern is to make sure that I'm refreshing my mental maps, refreshing all of my skills so that they're actually accessible to me when I do actually need them. And it's uh, the skill, you know, it's those, uh, that refreshing that takes all the, the work and the effort because you're, you're always trying to get better. You're always trying to find a different way to get some of this stuff. Um, you know, finding high quality force on force, man, that, that's tough to do, but it's probably the best way. The, the research very clearly shows us that's like the best way to do this stuff. And, and you're level, you know, um, this is a, a shout out. You know, I, I only send people to trainers who I've actually personally trained with. And you know, like right now, I send people to Carl Wren for force on force training. So I think his program's the best that I've personally seen. But, you know, uh, the force on force is huge as far as this stuff goes because you've got to not just refresh, you know, not just build mental maps, but refresh your mental maps. And you've got to refresh the, uh, the shooting skills as well. I like that. And I got to, I'll throw out my, big takeaway from the who wins who loses and why lecture the biggest takeaway i had from the whole thing there there were parts i enjoyed i like all of it but the big takeaway i had was uh you know that novel novelty and uh i have a future stepdaughter that was uh had a bit of a scary incident the other day and she's now more religious about carrying her pepper spray <laughs> and i ordered some uh inert cans and i told her i was like hey we're gonna have an afternoon session here pretty soon and you're gonna have to spray me with this this inert pepper spray period she's like oh, i don't understand i'll just and i'm like because if you've never done it before the first time you had to have to do it doesn't need to be when when the brown stuff's hitting the circular device in the ceiling right and I got that directly from your lecture. I was like, wow, I, there's a little piece of Hearn floating around in my brain. It's awesome. So concepts are important. And there's like, you know, there's like certain takeaways I want you to get. And that was one of them. So, you know, novelty, recency, task complexity, emotional control. Those are, I would say, are the, the, the big four points of that whole lecture. You know, if you took nothing but those away from that, I would be really, really happy. Yeah. And, and I relate that back to police work. You know, the first time you heard a pop and a whiz, you went, what was that? And then the second time you went, rut row, we're getting shot at. We got to do stuff. Right. The second time you heard it, it wasn't, it was no longer novel. It was just, let me go through my motor programs of how I'm going to address this. Or, you know, or the first time you see a car crash deer in the headlights, look, or what did you call it? The RCA Victor dog. For those of you who don't know, see Victor Doug, that little quizzical head tilted look. <laughs> Novelty and novel stimulus. Well, parting shots. What what have you got coming up uh, on the training side here? I'm trying to finalize my 2024 dates. So most likely I'm going to be at Carl Renz in January for the lecture and then the two day shooting class. February, I'm probably going to be out in Salt Lake City for two days of lectures. Um, March is still up in the air. March may be me teaching. Uh, range master instructor class out in California. Uh, as far as dates, I'm looking at Ohio, somewhere around March to that April window, or sorry, April to May, uh, probably Ohio. And I'm going to try to get out to Amarillo. Um, I haven't been able to make it very far west as far as that goes. And we're still, uh, Gale House, Weems, and possibly Hosh and I are still talking about doing some kind of at least one cognitive conclave. Uh, we're looking at uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, and possibly Oklahoma City Gun Club for those locations. So uh, pay attention to me on the usual places. And as soon as I get all those dates finalized, I'll push them out. Do you have a website up? Yeah, it's uh, so the two pillars training.com is the, is the skeleton website. I really need to spend some time working on that. Uh, I do have some files, uh, the targets we use in class and stuff like that. I've pushed all those up there. There's anything I found useful, like, you know, just how to make target stands and stuff like that are out on the website now. But that website uh, needs to be enhanced and brushed up. And that, that may sadly be a post-retirement kind of a thing because it's the, uh, 
the time to do that stuff is just just a real, real, real concern. But uh, I do have a two pillars training.com. And then also on uh, Facebook, especially as I, I have a dedicated pay, biz, uh, page for the business. And I'm always pushing classes there. I'm pushing uh, articles. I have a bunch of different interests. So I try to like every Monday, I try to do something I call a nerd nugget. And there's at least another, uh, another uh, you know, article or news story about how just the whole system is falling apart. And, uh, you know, Chicago, um, California are just great sources of ammunition for that one. And uh, I just learned this recently, Eventbrite. You can, if you have an Eventbrite account, you can follow John on Eventbrite because I do. And uh, and also Tom Givens and several Lee Weems and several other people. Uh, and it has a mobile app. It'll alert you when, when they post a class. So it's another little food. Uh, for that's the other thing is I am doing the crime lecture every year. I do like a, a look at the most current FBI data on crime and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be December 28th of this year. Uh, Tiffany always helps me with that one. So uh, we were literally discussing it on my way over here today because uh, I'm in lovely Whitehall, Arkansas, as far as that stuff goes. So I'll, I will be doing the online lecture on crime at the uh, the end of December as well. Excellent. And will it be uh, through Eventbrite, scheduled through Eventbrite? Uh, it'll be uh, tickets uh, through Eventbrite. It'll be a Zoom session. Uh, we'll run the thing live, and then you'll have access to the video for 30 days afterwards. Perfect. I'll uh, put that on my calendar. Well, all right. Thanks, John. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for letting me rant. Episode 104. 104. That's like 160 hours that you can listen to of uh, Esoterica. (laughs) Anyway, a reminder, if you have not, please check out our sponsors, guns.com. Buy, sell, enter yourself into the A400 Beretta giveaway. And uh, check out their network of FFLs. Also, Manus X. Fantastic piece of dry practice equipment. And EDC Belt Company, as always, the foundation belt. We're still around, folks. Still selling a lot of them. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Blueberry Podbean, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.